Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, the show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, and welcome to the 91st episode of the Business for Good podcast. Now, before we get on to this episode, let me first give a shout out to Caroline, who recently left a very thoughtful iTunes review for this show, writing, quote, I honestly never leave podcast written reviews, so this is a standout for me. She goes on to note that she's been binging the show in recent months and has learned a tremendous amount and highly recommends the podcast. There's a lot more to Caroline's review, which you can go read yourself, but Caroline, thank you. I'm glad the show makes a difference in your life and that you've let other people know that too. And if you like Business for Good podcast as well, go leave a review and maybe your review will be read on the show too. Now, if you follow the meat or the alternative meat industry closely, chances are high that you have read Lisa Keefe's work. As the editor-in-chief of both Meeting Place magazine, of course, that's M-E-A-T in place magazine, and now the new Alt-Meat magazine too, Lisa has been both reporting on and editorializing on all things meat for the past 15 years. She's also the creator of the Meeting Place podcast and is a frequent commentator on everything from trends to controversies and more in the meat space. While she is not a meat company executive, as a meat media executive, Lisa spent much of her career watching what's happening as far as plant-based and cultivated meat goes, as well as animal welfare changes occurring in the animal agriculture industry too. As you'll hear on this show, she certainly views the animal agriculture industry as a desirable one worth keeping around, yet she is very open-minded about animal-free proteins as evidenced by the existence of her newest creation, Alt Meat Magazine. In this interview, Lisa discusses her latest trip to Israel, where she tried various cultivated meat products, her views on why plant-based meat hasn't taken up as much market share as plant-based milk has yet, why the pork industry hasn't advanced cage-free animal welfare changes like much of the egg industry is doing, and more. I always learn from reading Lisa's work, and I learned even more by chatting with her for this episode, and I'm confident that you will too. So, if you have ever wondered what meat industry insiders think about the alt-meat world, now is your chance. I hereby bring you Lisa Keefe. Lisa, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate being invited. It is my pleasure to have you on. I have been reading your editorials and your articles, but especially your editorials for a very long time. So before we get into your work in the meat industry, uh, let me just first just ask you how that even came to be, because you used to be a journalist uh, I would say like more in the business sector, like you wrote for Forbes, you also did some time at the Orlando Sentinel. So how did it come to pass that you went from being a, a journalist who is covering topics that were, let's say, of interest to the business community as a whole to topics that are really of interest to this one particular industry? Like what what happened that you became the meat person? Job opportunities. Okay. Um, actually, the, the the fundamentals of what we write about at Meeting Place and Alt Meet are not different from what we covered at Forbes, what they cover at the Wall Street Journal. It is the business fundamentals. It simply is focused on a particular industry as opposed to maybe a sector. Uh, and of course, the audience is different. You're writing for a group of people who are insiders, and so they're uh, they're interest in topics is going to be a little more in the weeds than for a general audience. But other than that, the, the fundamentals are the same. So did you have an interest in meat in particular? Or was it really just that there was an opportunity and you fell into it? And, and now 15 years later, you're still writing about meat? It was the opportunity because I have had the same, not exactly, well, covering the meat industry and covering the alt meat industry are unique in their own ways. But I have had just as much fun covering the steel industry and the oil and gas industry and uh, and the retail industry. So it's it's really an interest in the subject itself. And then what makes it much more interesting, particularly in this case, are the people involved, which uh, in these particular in the meeting in the meat industry and the alt meat industry 
it is a unique set of individuals that are that are very high quality, and I've really enjoyed it. And so I'm still here 15 years later. <laughs> All right. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I'm a consumer of your podcast and of both of your magazines, and uh, I am appreciative of them. It's helpful for me as somebody who uh, would like to see a new kind of meat industry emerge to get a chance to learn more about the industry. So you have been a, a very valuable resource for me over the years, and for that, I'm grateful. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Now, let me ask you the uh, provocative question straight off the bat here, Lisa. We've been slaughtering thousands for thousands of years. We've been slaughtering animals for food. Will we continue doing so for thousands more years? Yes, but I don't personally, well, or journalistically, you know, covering the industry, uh, feel that the elimination of the animal ag industry is the goal or is, or should, in my way of thinking, should be the goal. The, the goal, well, uh, the, the outcome is going to be to change the industry. Fundamentally, the, the point of view, the, the demonstrations, the rise of the alt protein industry, the passion with which consumers and business people are pursuing this arena will fundamentally change how even the conventional meat industry uh, gets things done. And, but I think perhaps the wholesale replacement is neither realistic nor I think is it desirable. So let's talk about that then. You said you used to cover the oil industry. Uh, we've been using oil for a very long time now, but there's a real effort to try to have renewables replace oil or at least replace some of our oil use. And a lot of people would like to see it replace all of our fossil fuel use. So I presume you feel similarly, like we're going to be using oil for a very long time into the future. Is that right? Well, I think in... And I'm I'm certainly not a specialist in either meat science or oil science, uh, but it seems to me that these are natural resources that have been, uh, in certain ways, exploited uh, in in ways that are long term detrimental to society, to the ecology, to uh, to the economy, and but that they should be rethought in terms of what do they offer uh, in a way that can be used but not exploited in a way that is beneficial to society and also not damaging in other arenas. And I think that that would apply to an awful lot of things. I think that oil can probably uh, be used for an awful lot of tremendously um, beneficial aspects of society, and we simply are too dependent on it, and it's sort of you know, we're sort of bleeding the planet dry for this cash cow in terms of using uh, using petroleum in everything, uh, plastics and, and cars and airplanes and everything else. So I think that there's perhaps a, a middle, some sort of middle ground in which these industries still exist, but are used and perceived and pursued in a different way. Got it. So if oil is the figurative cash cow, let's talk about the actual cash cows then. So if you think, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So yeah. if, bravo, <laughs> I, I appreciate it. So uh, Lisa, you're calling, it sounds to me and, and correct me if I'm misinterpreting you, but it sounds to me like you are essentially advocating for a continuation of the use of animals for food, but in a different way. And so how different would it be? Like, what is it that happens today that would no longer happen or, or the inverse? What isn't happening that would be happening in the uh, key future that you are predicting here? I am interested in the tenets, for example, of regenerative agriculture, where an, an animal agriculture part of the economy is, uh, is pursued for business purposes, but in a way that is balanced with other considerations. Um, in my somewhat rudimentary understanding uh, of of how that happens on the farm, it's it can be very uh, lab not labor intensive, but sort of planning intensive. I mean, you really have to think about what you're doing and what are you planting, where and when. It's a lot of hands-on management that has to happen. I don't know how that plays out in terms of trying to, for example, move the entire animal agriculture industry in that direction. I sense 
though that there are elements of uh, of of the discipline of regenerative agriculture that that could be incorporated into our existing systems in a way that that optimizes the upside and minimizes the downside. Sure. So when I talk with advocates for regenerative agriculture, it seems to me like their message is, um, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but from since I'm not identifying any individual person, I will feel comfortable putting words in their mouth since it's a fake person here. But my understanding of when I talk to friends of mine who are very into regenerative ag, they say, you know, look, it would mean that the animals would be treated much better than they are today. But it would also mean that there'd be far fewer of them, that we would be eating less meat than we do today. And so in effect, like instead of raising, let's say, nine plus billion land animals for food every year in the United States like we do today, there'd be a significant reduction in that. And so you'd have people eating less meat, but as the slogan that they often use is less meat, but better meat. So is that what you're envisioning? Or are you envisioning an industry that's as large as it is today, but just utilizing different practices? Or would it actually be something where we'd be raising significantly fewer animals for food? That's an excellent question, and I don't have an answer offhand because when you're talking about the meat industry, um, it's not it, it is it is inter- interconnected internationally in such a way that there may be a sector of the U.S. population, and there is a sector of the U.S. population that uh, claims based meat products are are flying off the shelves. The phrase is the, the profits are in the adjectives. If you have grass-fed, if you have organic, if you have uh, hormone-free beef and that sort of thing, uh, consumers are really attracted to that. But that's also, uh, also at a premium price point. And so it is a certain sector of consumers uh, that tend to, uh, that tend to be the, the consumers in that of those particular products. So when you're talking about uh, providing less but better meat, you also have to take into to account the fact that there are uh, people around the world who need to be fed um, and are protein deficient, unlike most of us in the United States, and that a tremendous amount of what is produced at an affordable price point in the United States is shipped overseas. So sure, we could reduce the number of animals that we that are uh, followed in, um, uh, that are raised in the United States for meat production, but then that's less meat to be consumed in other countries where they might, where they can't maybe raise as much meat as they need themselves. And then, and then, you know, we have a nutrition uh, potentially a nutrition issue. Yeah, I, I will say that it's certainly true that there's a higher margin for the adjective products, as you call them, like organic and grass-fed, but they are still a very tiny portion of the total meat industry. I mean, yes. almost like a rounding error. And so we had on uh, Rob Paulberg on a uh, previous episode. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a Harvard uh, professor, but he, he has a, a very interesting book called Resetting the Table, in which he basically makes the argument that, you know, look, if you really want to feed humanity... Um, you're going to be using a lot less animals, you're going to be using less meat, and you're going to be using not organic pasture-based. You're going to be basically using GMO crops, synthetic fertilizers. And he makes the case that essentially if we were to go all organic, you would need like 40% more acreage to grow, (laughs) which would be catastrophic for wildlife habitat. And, And so- you know, he's making essentially the opposite argument that, you know, we should be, yes, we should be eating less meat, but we should be embracing biotech in food and agriculture in order to sustainably feed the world. Um, and so this is a, you know, an interesting counterpoint because it, you know, right now, like it seems to me like the most popular position among many food sustainability advocates is for things like grass-fed and organic. And, you know, his argument is that if you really care about sustainability, the opposite will be true. What do you think? And that is what makes covering this part of the industry so fascinating because you have these great ideas and great perspectives and they do not easily overlap. Uh, I think that the good professor is exactly right. And I think that over time, a, 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 there's, a, there's a lot of folks who, who, who pursue the... Um, you know, alt meat, alt protein mission, uh, and and also are non-GMO, and also are 
non-tech. They, they, they don't, they want to go back to nature. Okay. That's a great idea, but th there's a reality facing us. And when I talk about there's going to be a need to feed all these people around the world. And right now, a lot of that uh, is being done with conventional meat production, not only in the United States, Brazil, for example, uh, and at a cost. Um, that that doesn't mean that that's the only way that their protein needs, that this growing population's protein needs can be met. However, you have to start embracing you know the science, learn it, love it, live it. And, uh, and, and it is about GMOs and it is about, uh, um, uh, what am I looking at? Cultivated meat is the phrase I was trying to think of cultivated meat and, and things that, that a lot of folks sort of reject out of hand. It feels unnatural, but yeah, yeah. it, it isn't, it, it just, just because it was made in the lab doesn't mean it's soylent green. It's, you know, it, it can, <laughs> it can be actually, uh, I just had the chance to, uh, to try some, some cultivated meat products when I was in Israel and it, they were, I mean, astonishingly good. Great. I, I read your commentary on this and um, I will refrain from making any uh, jokes about you being in the holy land of, uh, of cultivated meat. But it is true that Israel, you know, second to the United States, essentially really is like the pioneer in the alternative protein world, especially in cultivated meat. It's amazing. I am, I'm not sure that Israel is second. Um, wow. and, I, and I, well, I mean, very much as I understand it, and I'm and and I don't want to dive into you know politics and and uh, and economics that I don't under don't totally grasp. But you know, very much like Singapore, you have a, a small country that says that looks around and says, mm, you know, a lot of our foodstuffs that we are providing to our uh, to our residents to our citizens uh, are are coming from other countries and. Particularly now, I think the the international political arena is looking particularly unsettled, and there is a move to say how much of this uh, vital nutrition to our citizens can be produced within our own borders, uh, so that you know, it, worst comes to worst, we we have an option uh, in order to to remain an ongoing operation here as a country. And I think that, that that's uh, that's really front and center in countries that are not the United States, which is sort of used to, you know, sitting in this huge, incredibly productive piece of ground, and uh, and we we have to sort of maybe think about the way things look from their point of view. Right, we, we're we're accustomed to going to Costco and seeing foods piled to the sky almost literally. It's just incredible. But it's not that you Absolutely. know it, it doesn't seem like that surprising. Like you mentioned Singapore and Israel um, because these are such tiny countries, and you know Israel was basically in the desert. It's not a surprise to me that Israel is who invented drip irrigation. You know, there's this uh, innovator named Simcha Blas in Israel who invented drip irrigation as a way to try to make the desert productive with as, as few resources as possible. Of course, that innovation in the decades since has saved billions of liters of water from being used in agricultural purposes. I actually use drip irrigation in my own uh, front and backyard here in Sacramento, which is also a pretty dry and, and, and uh, hot climate. Um, so if the entire world is kind of becoming like Israel in this sense, that we don't have a lot more room to grow food. We don't right. have a lot more room to raise animals. How many more forests do we want to chop down? Uh, then in the same way that we're producing more food with less water because of drip irrigation, we're going to have to produce more meat with fewer animals. And so it doesn't seem that surprising to me that Israel is a pioneer, or maybe you could say that Israel is the Mecca of the cultivated meat movement. Um, but it is, a, <laughs> but, um, uh, but it's cool that you were there and that you were trying it. And so before well, actually, let me just ask you about this now. So with cultivated meat, you know, this is still like almost, it's not even a rounding error. It's 0%. And aside from like a, a very minuscule symbolic um, commercialization in Singapore, it's not even legal to sell it in Israel or the United States. Or to um, even offer it as, as a product for taste, except in, in certain countries, like I think uh, the Netherlands recently approved it. You can have private tastings of this stuff if you'd like. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, in, in writing my own book, Clean Meat, these companies were very happy to offer me numerous tastings of it. And so the earliest time I ever tried it and was um, in 2014. I tried some uh, cultivated beef. And since then, I've had the pleasure of trying cultivated 
fish, duck, sausage, foie gras, chorizo, like a, a whole bunch of things. And so I don't know if this is true, but I suspect it might be that I have eaten a greater diversity of species of cultivated meat than any other person. I don't know. I don't have evidence of this, but it feels true to me. So I'll take it. <laughs> it, it sounds good. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I'll, yeah. You, you have a perspective that I don't, which was that I hadn't had the chance to try any of these uh, these types of products in the past. And so I sense that there has been a progression in the in the quality of the end product, because certainly what I was trying um, was much closer than I expected to yeah. what I would buy at Costco. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of interested in, in what your impressions have been over time, whether in these, in these successive tastings, if you feel that there has been an, an advancement made. I do think so. Um, so what I first tried in 2014 was at Modern Meadow, which is since abandoned beef and just works on leather now. Um, but you know, they at the time were making what they called beef chips. And these were essentially like these desiccated potato chip looking things that were made out of cow cells. So There's no potato in them. Uh, and so when I tried it, it like definitely had a beefy taste, but it was not even like jerky. It was truly like the texture of a potato chip to me. And I liked it. Um, it tasted good to me. In fact, I wish they had given me more. I remember thinking at the time, well, man, I wish I could eat more of this. Um, so it was pleasurable to me, um, but it was totally novel. It wasn't just like it, that it didn't taste like meat. I mean, it, it had the flavor of it, but not the texture. It was that it wasn't like anything I'd ever had. It was like a completely novel thing. You know how Tyson is making those chips out of chicken now? I forget yeah. what it's called, but they have something. It's kind of like that. It's like a novel food category. Um, and so that's what it was like. Whereas now, um, you know, just the other day, actually, I was at Wild Type in San Francisco and they offered me some salmon sushi. And you know, it looked to me like if you had shown it to me visually, I could not have told at all that it wasn't tuna. And it tasted like raw tuna to me. I mean, it which frankly it is. So it's not that surprising to me. And, and I guess they, you know, these companies have raised hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases each. And so hopefully they make progress. <laughs> I mean, hopefully they're doing something with that to actually uh, do product development and, and get better. Um, but so then when do you think we, so like if you were predicting, two things. When do you think cultivated meat will actually be competing in the marketplace? And then when do you think it'll actually be some type of a cannibalization threat? Like if you look at the way that there's this backlash from the cattlemen against Beyond Meat and Impossible, and it's leading to these labeling laws and so on, cultivated meat is a long way away from even presenting any threat, I think, like that. So what do you think? When is cultivated meat going to be available to the average American consumer? And then how long after that before it actually poses some type of a market threat to the conventional meat industry? And the next thing you're going to ask is what are the lottery numbers for tonight, right? Um, <laughs> Go ahead. That'd be fun. We'll see. <laughs> it is the $65,000 question or $65 billion question. Um, yes. Because um, my my guess, and this is uh, based on, on no particular data, but just watching business cycles over a lot of years and having tried these items, um, I think I wrote in, in my editorial, I thought, you know, these are much closer to being consumer ready than I had thought based on what I was reading. Uh, and there are, you know, certainly... It, instances of companies that keep promising that this is going to be available and then they keep pushing that promise out year after year after year to the point where you as a reader I would I would read these projections and I would my eyes would roll and I'm like okay here we go again so um, so having actually had the chance to uh, not only try them but also observe the technology in action I thought it, it changed my thinking in terms of the timeline for conventional meat availability in the sense that, yes, there still is a cost issue, uh, a big cost issue. Um, I'm not exactly sure how much because companies will say that they have brought the cost of that medium for uh, cultivating the cells down uh, considerably, but for proprietary reasons, nobody wants to get into specifics. So, um, so let's let's set a, set that aside. But um, but with that in mind, um, really, I feel like we're waiting on the regulators, and uh, and that I think nobody can put a timeline on 
and because it's really sort of I mean not just in the United States but in all these countries it's kind of a it's kind of a black box uh, the regulators operate sort of in 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 their own corners and that's the way it really needs to be because they need to make their decisions about regulations on uh, on a on the basis of factors that are you know numerous and competing um, but I think that once the regulators get on board I think this could move very very quickly. So let's talk about that. And when we talk about quickly, because, you know, plant-based meat has been on the market for decades now, right? Like even, you know, going back to the Boca burgers of the nineties and even going back to like the 1890s with um, uh, John Harvey Kellogg and his products. Um, (laughs) So, you know, these products have been around for a long, long time. And even today, with all of the billions of dollars investment, all of the headlines, you would get the impression that, you know, this is taking over. In reality, it's still less than 1% of the volume of the meat industry. Uh, not It's about 1% on a dollar basis, but on a volume basis, which is from a sustainability concern, what is the most important thing? It's still less than 1%. I mean, it's barely even a rounding error. That's not true, though, in the milk industry, where the fluid milk market has truly uh, actually been cannibalized to some extent by alternative milks, oat milk, soy milk, almond milk, and so on. So why do you think it is, Lisa, that the milk industry or that the alternative milk industry has had so much more success than the alternative meat industry has in actually gaining market share at the expense of the conventional incumbents? The same two reasons that thus it has, al- thus it has always been and thus it will always be, which is price and taste. Okay. Um, I, I, have, I am a fan of, of some of the oat, uh, of the plant-based uh, milk products as well. I'm particularly um, fond of uh, Califia Farms um, barista uh, coffee creamers and and Oatly's coffee creamers. Um, And they have figured out how to produce these products at a price point that that the average consumer, we are a mass consumption uh, country here and, and very much uh, other countries have sort of adopted that economic model for better, for worse McDonald's. Um, And the, um, and so to be able to offer something that tastes good at a price point that people will uh, adhere to, that gives them sort of the permission to to then make those choices and and even tell themselves and maybe other people, well, I'm I'm doing this, you know, I'm doing this good thing and this is better for the planet. Um, I do feel that that however mission driven a consumer or a business person might be, that it really comes down to sort of those limbic issues of price and taste. Uh, it, am I going, is this going to be a valuable purchase for me? And I think the plant-based meats in particular um, are so much closer than they ever have been and still aren't quite there. You're saying they're closer than they ever have been on taste, but on price, there's still a pretty big delta between the price of plant-based meat and conventional meat. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I recently, or excuse me, my wife was in Safeway and she purchased um, <clears throat> Beyond Burgers and they were like five ninety nine for two quarter pound patties. So, you know, it's like 12 bucks a pound. Uh, you know, that's not like 20 or 30% more expensive than conventional patties. Uh, yeah, it's like two or 300% more expensive. Yes. yes. Um, and, and so, you know, there is this major delta. So you mentioned which of the um, oat milks that you prefer, the Califia Farms, are there particular brands of plant-based meat that you're referring to that you think are getting much closer on taste that you think are the ones that you prefer the most? You know, I I don't want to mention a specific company, not only because that's the area that we cover, um, but also because I have had the chance to sample m- just many more different uh, brands at various events and such, plus what I have purchased myself. And, um, and I, and one of them does not stand out from the others or two of them do not stand out from the others in terms of being closer or being closer in price. I, I, I do feel like for various reasons, um, companies are, are close, but there might be, you know, an aftertaste on one case, or uh, I've tried something else and, and the texture was, the taste was really good, but the texture wasn't quite right. And I'm not sophisticated enough of a food scientist to be able to say, well, you know, if I'm trying a chicken nugget, am I, am I finding it, the coating 
to be the problem or is it the um, the the method of cooking that's the problem uh, or is it in fact the the product itself I had an interesting some years ago now uh, when impossible had first uh, rolled out the impossible sliders uh, at White Castle and I went to a White Castle uh, near my house and tried them and uh, and they were not good they it was just it was like I, I felt like I had picked up grass clippings <laughs> from my garden. It was trying to chew on it uh, with some ketchup and mustard on it or whatever. Um, and yet a coworker of mine had gone to a white castle near her house and said, Oh, and she's a vegetarian. And she's like, Oh, this is the, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Uh, and I thought, you know, here, here we have an example of, of the same product from the same uh, source and the same, you know, brand of serving it to me. And, and, very different experiences. And not only do people have different uh, perceptions of taste uh, and texture and that sort of thing, um, but also probably the way that it was prepared was very different. That was, it should be standardized across a, a franchise chain like White Castle, but apparently it wasn't. And, um, and all of these are factors in terms of uh, perception and adoption I haven't gone back to any White Castle for an impossible slider since then, uh, right. and and haven't really sought it out in the stores. And uh, you know, based on that experience, and and I would say that I'm probably not atypical of most consumers. Yeah, probably not. And I have noticed the same thing, not just in my own social circle, but even in focus groups that we at the Better Meat Co, the company that I work at, you know, we conduct a lot of focus groups. And we segregate the focus groupies into omnivores and herbivores, because what we found is that they really do have different preferences. Mm -hmm. And uh, oftentimes things that are more meat-like are preferred by the omnivores and things that are more meat-like are not preferred as much by the herbivores. And yes. it, it's like truly different sets of data. And so you can't just like put it in and say, hey, do you like this or not? And your anecdotal case that you just mentioned seems to affirm that. And I'll tell you, like as for me, somebody who has been an herbivore for uh, nearly 30 years now, I don't like... I, I'm I'm bullish on the alternative meat industry because I think it's so important for the world, but I wouldn't care if I never ate it myself, like ever. Like I'm very happy to eat tofu and quinoa, which is so stereotypical. Like it's just, it's like a, almost like a, a caricature of a vegan. Um, but that's the truth. Like I'm, I'm very happy to eat a black bean burger or tofu, et cetera. Um, but I, I really am, am enthusiastic about the alt meat industry because I believe it's frankly the, like the only way that we are ever going to wean ourselves off of uh, this addiction to raising billions upon billions of animals in conditions that are, are totally unsustainable and inhumane. And so <clears throat> I, uh, you know, I have almost, like, not almost, I am at the point where I say, like, it just doesn't matter what vegetarians think. Like, it really, there's such a tiny portion of the market. The companies are not marketing to them. Um, their opinion just doesn't really matter here. What matters is what everyday meat consumers are going to think. And so um, I, I hope that the companies, the big companies in this space are excluding vegetarians from their focus groups when they're doing this. <laughs> I think to a large extent that they are. And, and, and I think what you're hitting on there is the growing complexity of this market since the, since the introduction of the idea of uh, a, a meat free food product that replicates or, or is a meat analog uh, has sort of sprung up because, you know, with all due respect to Morningstar and Boca burgers, you're not going to, you're not going to confuse them with a beef burger, um, you know, from back in the day. But, uh, you know, this idea that you could have a Beyond Burger, an Impossible Burger, and I have had some very good versions of those burgers um, that I thought tasted very meaty, um, that since then consumers, th there was an initial response to it, but now it's been a while and now consumers are starting to self-select into these different categories. And, uh, and I think you're right. I think that there was an idea that, um, uh, you know, oh, this, this will be for more than the vegetarians. And yet the, the, the meat eating public that is 
that is being courted in this case, I think is also breaking down into, into some different category. A lot of people tried it and then won't go back. Uh, but then there have been improvements. Maybe they need to be lured back to try it again. I think it's, we're in a reset period in the plant-based market in general, plant-based meat, uh, market, um, in terms of reevaluating, re- sort of re uh, reconstituting itself, and I think that I I hope that companies that are pursuing this space are paying a lot of attention to how consumers and how their perceptions are changing and what their experiences have been, and incorporating that into um, into what they are doing in order to sort of overcome. Plant-based meats are starting to get a bit of a reputation, um, you know, as being expensive and not tasting very good. And I think that that can be changed, but you you have to overcome those first impressions. Yeah, it is very hard to um, have a second chance to make a first impression. And this is uh, one of the reasons that I'm so enthusiastic about using mycelium, because I I think it is just inherently a superior substrate to actually try to recreate the meat experience. You know, there's like three ways to recreate it. You know, you can do plant protein isolates like soy protein or pea protein, etc. You can grow actual animal cells, or you can use uh, fungi like mycelium. And uh, I, I think that in my experience, from both an economical and just a sense experience like mycelium really is the a, a very strong candidate here i'm not saying we shouldn't do all of them it's kind of like you know renewables like you want wind you want solar you want geothermal right. you want you want nuclear like there's lots of things that you want but i think that uh, mycelium is the most underrated and underexplored method of doing this i think that's going to change going forward i think fermentation is getting a lot of attention right now as a as a production technology and also um, your idea of creating a product that then at least initially is combined with conventional meats often um, that that is probably realistically the next big step that the mass consumer market will take in terms of a combination. In Israel, I tried uh, a chicken nugget that was plant-based, but had been flavored with cultivated chicken fat. Uh, And it was absolutely delicious. And Uh, and you you thought it was categorically different than a conventional plant-based nugget? Yes. Okay. And um, that, that actual cultivated, in this case, chicken product, there was just a dimension of the flavor that is missing from a plant-based version. And I've had some very good plant-based versions um, where, and, and it was also, a, by the way, the nugget had excellent breading and was perfectly cooked. So, um, you know, baked in an air fryer. So, I mean, there are, other, there are always these other elements that go into it. So it's, it's hard to say categorically this or that, but um the the popularity of, for example, you know, mushroom and beef mixed burgers uh, is really catching on, particularly at, at a lot of uh, college campuses. And it has the added advantage, I think, of often um, lowering the price point uh, across the board, particularly now with prices of conventional meat being so high, mm-hmm. that it helps to to lower the price point of these products that are being served uh, in, a, in large quantities. Yeah. So, Lisa, let me ask you. So, we've spent, you know, the last 35 or so minutes talking about alternative proteins. But I have a feeling that if we were talking 10 years ago, that we wouldn't really have been talking that much about that. We probably would have been talking about animal welfare practices in the mm-hmm. meat industry. Um, we would have been talking about gestation crates for pigs and battery cages for chickens and veal crates for calves, which were really like the hot button issues back then. And it seems like the meat industry's focus now is really more on alternative protein. Would, would you say that's accurate or do you think that's a misrepresentation? Well, I think it's a bit of a misrepresentation because... If I'm a meat company exec, first of all, most of your large meat companies have an alternative meat operation. That is whether it is in some cases, it's it's an investment fund. Um, but in other cases, for example, in Maple Leaf in Canada, um, it's a rather substantial uh, manufacturing part of their industry. And you can go to the other side and say, Archer, uh, well, ADM, it's not Archer Daniels Midland anymore, but ADM, um, 
you know, uh, has been making soybean products for many, many years, and they have a substantial and fast growing alternative protein business. Um, actually putting it together into something that is much closer to the consumer side of the operation than ADM has ever, uh, I think, gone before. And um, and I think that this is, in, in the headlines and things, this has captured uh, a lot of attention in the meat executives, and they are responding to that. Um, some of them positively, a lot of people in the industry are responding very negatively to it. But I think that's the noise. I think that unless you are a meat company that is investing in the plant-based business um, on a day in and day out basis, if I'm a meat company executive, there's not an awful lot I can do about a plant-based operation other than to try to produce, uh, you know, the, the best product I know how in the best way I know how. So when we talk about them, then we get back to the animal uh, rights or the animal, the humane handling um, and, and humane uh, issues. And that becomes much more under uh, a meat company executive's purview. They have something, they can do something about that. They can, they can work with their suppliers. They can either, uh, and, and with their customers and uh, work on making sure that their pork is, is sourced, you know, a certain way or that the, that the, that the poultry has been raised in a certain way, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, and I think, so, so I think that that actually in the meat within the meat industry is probably taking more bandwidth than it would seem from the headlines. Interesting. So let's chat about that then. Uh, you know, ten years ago, like the big thing it seemed was really, um, or maybe less than ten years ago, the big thing was battery cages. Now the egg industry seems to have essentially said we're going cage free. Like the, every like everybody who I know in the egg industry thinks that the future is cage free. And in the last uh, 10, 15 years, the industry has gone from around you know like five percent cage free to about thirty percent cage free, and they just keep moving in, in that direction. On gestation crates, though, which were also a, a were and continue to be this contentious issue. There doesn't seem to be the same recognition. Uh, even in the pork industry for companies that are moving away from gestation crates, they, there's now this debate. I'm sure you saw what was happening with McDonald's and investor Carl Icahn about how long the sows can be kept in gestation crates. Like, you know, McDonald's was saying, well, we're not using gestation crates for the whole pregnancy, but we'll let them be in these crates for about a month at the very beginning of the pregnancy. Like there seems to be more resistance here. So what's your view on this? Like, why do you think it is that the pork industry hasn't gone the way of the egg industry and just said, hey, we're going to stop confining sows uh, uh, in, in gestation crates. Um, and on this other issue about what was happening at McDonald's, I'd love to know your thoughts. Like, what do you think? Uh, you know, is there a case to be made for keeping the sows in crates for a month uh, after they've been inseminated? Or should they just be in group housing all, the whole time? With the caveat that my, my commentary is coming from the market and perhaps uh, uh, overall, well, the market point of view, because I'm, I'm not an animal scientist, I'm not a food scientist. And I think that there is a lot of room for debate around the details, as you mentioned, okay, if we're going to use gestation crates, uh, or gestation stalls, um, you know, it, it, how long, how many is it? Is it X number of days? Is it Y number of days? And, and from the point of view of somebody covering the industry, um, that's, something for the scientists to work out, but in terms of trying to run a business on a day-to-day basis, that's a little bit in the weeds. Um, and, uh, and I think that when Carl Icahn, although the man is certainly known, knows how to get headlines. Um, I, I think that, um, probably I look at it and I think that's probably a, a more of a, 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 an effort on his end to, to raise public awareness of an issue, not really to get McDonald's to agree. Hmm, interesting. I don't, well, a lot of, a lot of shareholder proposals, uh, uh, actually that they, they have, I mean, the way that the system is, is set up, they have almost, uh, no chance of passing 99% of the time, but just the fact that they were proposed by a uh, an activist shareholder group uh, ends up bringing awareness to an issue that uh, that otherwise they felt perhaps was overlooked. Yeah, and, and to be clear on these shareholder proposals at, at uh, 
public companies, even if 100% of the shareholders vote in favor of it and therefore it, quote, passes, it's still only advisory. It's not binding on the company to do it. So, exactly. you know, it, it certainly is, uh, you know, an issue to raise awareness. But I'll, I'll tell you, what, I, my view of Carl is a little bit different. I think that he helped to broker in 2012 this agreement with McDonald's. And he feels, you know, they, they said within 10 years, we'll be done with gestation crates. And now 10 years later, they're saying, okay, well, you know, we aren't really done with gestation crates. We're going to be not using them for the majority of the pregnancy. And I think he feels, I haven't spoken to him about this, but I do believe that he feels like that they moved the goalposts and that they're not going through on the deal that he made with them 10 years ago. Um, but I, I don't want to speak for him. That's just my impression of how he feels. Well, moving goalposts is a time-honored tradition in business, politics, and all sorts of things. So I'm, I'm, I think you're absolutely <laughs> right on that case, on that point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. So but you, you would ask me why, why, were the battery cages so much, uh, so much more quickly adopted, mm-hmm. um, and that just the, the whole gestation stall issue is is moving more slowly, and it I, I I'm going to, I'm not a meat company executive, and I'm not trying to raise hogs, but I'm going to say it's a matter of investment. One of the things that I find interesting about the point of view of, for example, the global roundtable for I'm going to say the global roundtable for sustainable beef, but. It also is a matter of of the other global roundtables that that have formed internationally to address uh, these issues in in other species as well. But you can talk about sustainability in terms of how you treat the planet. You can talk about sustainability in terms of how you treat your animals. But you also have to talk about sustainability in terms of the existence and the profitability of the company. And it it doesn't do the economy or the employees or or the communities where these companies operate much good if they are imposed uh, if 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 they are forced or, or a regulation is imposed on them to adopt you know some sort of technology to do something that is going to be uh, excessively expensive and 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 put them out of business. Now, what 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 is excessive is is going to be arguable in each company's case. But I think that when we're talking about revamping uh, a hog barn for uh, for housing the the animals as opposed to poultry, uh, that you're talking about a very different uh, very different financial investment. And of course, the the meat supply chain is set up in such a way that perhaps often, maybe always, um, the financial burden of that falls on. Uh, on the people who can perhaps least afford to uh, to support it. F- fair enough point. I-, I will say, like, it's interesting that in the egg industry, the cage tree policies affect essentially 100% of the birds, whereas the gestation policies affect like 5% of the total pig herd because sows are such a tiny portion of all pigs. And so it's not like you have to revamp the entire industry. It's like this tiny portion of the industry that is involved in breeding of piglets. Um, so it, I'm, I'm not saying it's not a, a capital expenditure, um, but it's surprising to me that the capital expenditure is for 100% of laying hens, whereas it's only for about 5% of the pigs. And yet, you, I, I wouldn't have expected it to go this way. Um, one theory on this that was offered to me, well, go ahead. I know you want to respond to that. Well, I mean, we're talking about 100% of laying hens. It's because if you're raising um, egg layers and you have a male chick, that male chick doesn't see the light of day after a couple of days. So 100% of your egg laying industry is the hens. Whereas on the hog side, the sows may be a smaller percentage of the overall industry, but on the other hand, you don't have an industry without the sows. Uh, and so, uh, so I think that's, you know, that's the big difference there. Mm, okay. Uh, interesting. So uh, when I contemplate uh, the meat industry, I, I look at it now and, and well, first let me just say on this egg and, and pork issue, I, I do wonder if part of it has to be, has to do with the fact that there's a lot of consolidation 
in the egg industry. Like there's only a few dozen big players. Whereas most of these uh, pig farmers, there's like thousands and thousands of them. Now there's a few big pig companies that slaughter, but as far as the farmers are concerned, like it's thousands and thousands of them. Like Smithfield doesn't own a lot of the uh, farms that are supplying them as an example. Uh, whereas the egg companies are like totally vertically, vertically integrated for the most part. Um, and so I, I do think it's probably easier to make industry-wide decisions when that is the case. Um, very rather much than so. in the rather than in the pork industry, um, yeah. The the meat supply chain is is very interesting in the sense that you have these independent, put quotes around it, independent farmers um, that are that are raising the animals uh, for meat, and um, and the economics of that because you know, although you're raising the the hogs, they are under contract to a particular company, and uh, a lot of times the farmers. Um, they are told exactly for, for, for commercial reasons and for good reasons, they are told exactly how they are supposed to handle those animals and what investments they need to make and what kind of, what does their barn has to look, uh, what their barn has to look like and how much space they have and et cetera. So, so it's a very interesting situation where you're responsible for the business, but you, but many, many, many decisions are made by folks that are not directly involved in your business. And you have to, well, I guess it's like owning a franchise uh, of, of a restaurant, for example, it's, you know, you're running the business, but you have to do it according to somebody else's rules. Mm, interesting analogy. Um, let me ask you then, Lisa, like you probably have a greater uh, bird's eye view of this industry than anybody. You've been covering it for a long time. You now are covering both sides, both the uh, conventional and the alternative. Maybe it won't be alternative for too long. Who knows? Uh, but for right now, it's alternative. Um, there does seem to me to be some type of a dichotomy in the industry now, where you have some players who are embracing this and doing what you said. They have divisions that are devoted, devoted to manufacturing of plant-based meat. They're making investments in cultivated meat companies. And then you have others who are really taking a far more hostile position toward these disruptors and are trying to pass laws to crack down on them, whether it's on labeling or on other issues. Um, and, and like, I do see like some type of a distinction between the cattlemen, for example, the people who actually raise the animals and the companies that are just selling CPG products. Like it seems like the cattlemen are the ones who are far more oppositional here than the uh, branded meat companies, which are offering their own plant-based meat lines as well. Um, maybe they just see it as another opportunity to sell product and they don't care whether the meat comes from animals or from plants. Um, but what's your advice? Like if you were to actually, you know, you're not just a journalist, you're an editor. So you, you write editorials with your own opinion in them as well. Like if you were offering advice to people in the meat industry, what would you say? Would it be fight them or join them? Like, would you say, you know, you should be embracing this as a good opportunity or that you should fight to preserve the status quo? Um, like what is the, the key doctrine when it comes to the alt protein industry? Uh, the Keefe doctrine um, is messy. Uh, and the Keefe Doctrine um, changes often uh, based on uh, new information. Uh, for example, you talk about this being a dichotomy, uh, very much a, a binary situation, as so many uh, parts of our public discourse these days seem to have broken down into very binary positions. What do you um, mean? I haven't, I haven't heard of this. No, just, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. yeah can't imagine what we're talking about politics. Um, and, uh, and I think that it is not just the meat industry that is uh, approaching, that is bringing a hostile attitude to this discussion. Um, I think that there are not all, but a number of folks on the alt meat side uh, are the alternative protein side that are, that are uh, very aggressive in their messaging, which is great. I'm all about, passion and dedication. I think that um, having watched a lot of businesses over a long period of time, that what will eventually happen, whether uh, individual players intend it to or not, is going to be um, uh, an erosion. They, they sort of rub against each other and there's maybe an erosion of the sharp points on both sides. And some sort of middle ground is found. And the middle ground is determined by 
the economics, the macroeconomics, and also the business economics involved uh, in terms of, again, price and taste. You, you take the technology and you advance it and you make uh, a plant-based burger that tastes like a million bucks, uh, no pun intended, and um, and it, it and the and the situation is going to take care of itself. For example, um, and and yeah, the it, I mean, from a ranchers, from the producer's point of view, from the from the hog farmer, from the poultry farmer, from the rancher uh, or or beef farmer's point of view, um, there there would be an objection because that is their entire livelihood, um, as opposed to a meat company. Um, and, and I think we're thinking of the meat companies in terms of the big conglomerates, the Tysons and the Cargills and the whatever, but the vast majority of meat companies are much smaller. Uh, and, um, and, but they are looking in terms of, I am, I'm running a processing business. I am running a factory essentially. And so um, if my machines are kept busy making a plant-based product um, that benefits my business and I'm happy to do that. And I'm, and, and I'm not going to be as an, a, a big objector um, because I also have, you know, maybe the other 90% of my business is still the conventional meat industry, which is, you know, really can't afford to turn their noses up at, at the pro at, at process. We can't say, I'm not going to work with you because you're, 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 you're processing plant-based products as well. And I object to that because the, the meat guys, um, the, the producers absolutely have to have somebody who is going to process uh, their animals or they don't stay in business. So, um, so I think that, that you have the processors who are much more for, for absolute in your face, day-to-day business decision-making reasons are happy to, um, to look at it in terms of uh, providing protein, looking at it as a protein industry as opposed to a meat or alt meat industry. I suspect that over a very long period of time, that is where the entire sector will go. Both, both sides of it are, are, are very slowly and incrementally moving in the direction of becoming a, um, a, a protein industry, whether that's through blended products or um, flexitarians and that sort of thing. Uh, companies, most of your plant-based products are, are made on, on machines by meat packers who also are co-packing for the plant-based companies. So, um, so we have a lot of, people think of this as two different businesses and I look at them and I say, there's a tremendous amount of overlap. Not, not in terms of philosophy, but in terms of actual, the actual business of getting it from here to there, um, onto the plate, uh, are very much covering the same ground. And you're also, uh, the two businesses are aiming at the same consumer. So a lot of the messaging, uh, is going to, to, is getting closer and closer together. And so I, I don't, uh, it is, is a dichotomy and I feel like to a certain extent, it's a bit of a false dichotomy in the sense of it's a matter of messaging and what actually is happening on the ground and what is going to continue to happen more and more often on the ground going forward is, in fact, um, the, the same operation just coming from using different ingredients and coming from different points of view mm-hmm. or coming from okay. different sources, one being plant and one being animal. And the way it happens is very different. So. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Uh, you know, one is more of a assembly process, and the other is more of a disassembly process. So there exactly. are some there are some differences, but the, in the end, the experience for the consumer uh, hopefully will be roughly the same. And uh, you know, in the same way that we still have ways to capture our memories that we call photographs, they're just now done in a different way. Like we don't go into dark rooms anymore; we just do them digitally. Right. Uh, I think that you know the experience of meat will continue to be enjoyed by humanity for a very long time. Lisa, as we are wrapping up, let me ask you. Um, a friend of mine just got back from Scotland and Ireland, and he told me that he tried vegetarian haggis. Now, for those who aren't even familiar with what haggis is, you know, it's like, I think it's like, it's like the heart and the lungs or something like that of like a goat or a sheep and they wrap it up in like their intestinal lining or something. It's something that, you know, a lot of people outside of that geography have never even had actual haggis, let alone vegetarian haggis. So let me ask you then, is there something that you wish existed 
that doesn't yet exist. And it doesn't have to be haggis, but, you know, something that on the alternative side, the alternative protein side, is there something that, you know, Lisa Keefe really wants to try that you haven't had a chance to try yet? Well, it definitely, and I'm Irish, but I'm going to say it's definitely not haggis. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it, it's a cliche, and I know that the industry is working in this direction, but um, a really good, juicy, whole muscle steak um, that has all the mouthfeel, all the flavor, uh, all of those sensory connections um, that that I feel with with a really good, you know, celebratory, uh, steak dinner. Um, and, and, and like I said, I know they're, they're working on it. Um, and I don't know if it's even scientifically possible, honestly, but it, we've got the best minds working on it. So if, if it's possible, they'll find a way. And that would be, that would be my goal. We certainly have a lot of smart people working on it, some of whom are working at the Better Meat Co. And I hope, Lisa, that if you're ever in Sacramento, you'll swing on by and get a chance to try one of our mycelium steaks. They're pretty good. I am actually actively trying to figure out a way to make that happen. Okay. Well, the, the red carpet will be rolled out for you. So I look forward to that, Lisa. And Fantastic. thanks so, And thanks so much. I really enjoy reading all of your editorials and articles and listening to your podcast. And I, uh, I am especially enthusiastic that Alt Meat Magazine now exists. What a world that that is the case. And uh, maybe in the future, it won't have that same title because it won't be Alt anymore at all. It'll just be meat. We'll see. That would be fantastic. Or protein magazine. <laughs> All right. Very good. Lisa right. Keefe, editor of Alt Meat of Meeting Place and future of just protein. So thanks again, Lisa. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.